The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. I'm Neil Zacharias, and you're listening to Eat for the Planet. On this show, we try to answer the question, how can we eat in a way that nourishes us without starving the planet? The show features conversations with food industry leaders, health and sustainability experts, as well as entrepreneurs and creative minds who are redefining the future of food. In this episode, I chat with Pat Mooney, the co-founder and executive director of the ETC Group, a nonprofit that has focused on the role of new technologies on the lives and livelihoods of marginalized people around the world. Pat is an expert on agricultural diversity, biotechnology, and global governance with decades of experience in international civil society. He has almost half a century of experience working in international civil society, first addressing aid and development issues, and then focusing on food, agriculture, and commodity trade. He received the Right Livelihood Award in the Swedish Parliament in 1985 and the Pearson Peace Prize from Canada's Governor-General in 1998. Our conversation was anchored around a new report released by the International Panel of Experts on Sustainable Food Systems in collaboration with the ETC Group called A Long Food Movement, Transforming Food Systems by 2045. In this report, IPES Food and the ETC Group map out two very different futures for food systems, people, and planet. It examined what the next 25 years would look like under agribusiness as usual versus agribusiness as unusual. In this wide exploration of scenarios surrounding the future of food, Pat and I discuss a range of nuanced topics and examine the pros and cons of various current food systems approaches and solutions. I hope you enjoy listening to this conversation. Pat Mooney, thank you so much for joining us on the Eat for the Planet podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, you know, the big question when it comes to the future of food is how do we create a food system that's just equitable and within planetary boundaries? That's what everyone seems to be trying to figure out for the last several decades. Uh, but lately, with a little bit more urgency, given we're kind of running out of time and most plans we've had have not worked out so far, uh, that's one of the reasons I was really intrigued to see your new report that was released by the ETC Group and IPES Food uh, about the long food movement. What I found really interesting, I mean, not only because you painted these two very different scenarios for where the future of food can go in the next um, few decades, but more importantly, I think what surprised me initially was the way you frame current efforts to transform the food system using automation and synthetic biology and digitization as being business as usual rather than revolutionary breakthroughs. Because most people, when they talk about 
food technology that they, they they it's messaged as a revolutionary breakthrough that's going to change the food system you categorize those as business as usual so let's start there maybe why why is you know synthetic biology business as usual or oh, any of these new technologies well, the president of Coca-Cola actually made a great speech to uh, to uh, bankers in, in Atlanta, Georgia, and and talked about how we're in the midst of a revolution, and if they didn't get on board, they'd be swept away and lo- or lost behind, and that that revolution was around both the environment and consumer demand, and everyone had to change, and they had to change fast, and uh, and that required new technologies. Uh, but that speech was made 50 years ago in 1970. Uh, and I've been around long enough to have heard those speeches constantly uh, and, and, and uh, prophecies from industry telling us about the revolutionary changes taking place and what they're going to do about it. And they're just around the corner. We're going to have some new wonderment that's going to solve our problems for us. And they haven't happened. Uh, so to me, when I hear talk about what are exciting sounding new technologies, I still assume that, well, yes, some of them may happen, some of them won't happen, uh, some of them will work against us, and some of them might be slightly beneficial, but it's kind of business as usual, and we can't afford that. Yeah, I mean, let's break down the technologies a little bit. You, you, you know, there's digitization, which you, in the report especially, it goes into great detail, um, to some extent, really paints this this pretty clear picture of where the food industry is sort of heading towards uh, when it comes to data gathering and using data to make decisions. What what makes you, I would say, less than optimistic? Is it largely because of the corporate consolidation that exists in the food industry? Is that the real issue here? It's part of it, certainly. Uh, it's maybe exacerbated now more because the corporations that are consolidating aren't even in the food system, but they're profoundly impacting the food system. Um, a lot of what's happened in the last few decades, which is, has paralleled what has happened in, in, in food with other sectors, with pharmaceuticals or the automobile industry or, or many other areas that have all gone through consolidation. So that's not surprising. What's happening now, however, is, is a consolidation where we have technology platforms like data that are uh, cloud computing controls or, or digital DNA and, and, and their information systems that really do change things. That it means that suddenly the, 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 the uh, uh, convergences that can happen, uh, controls that can be exercised really cut across several industrial sectors at the same time. And that's different. So you, Amazon can suddenly become a food company. Uh, uh, Alibaba in China is suddenly working with farmers and running drones as well as trying to market things and, on the internet. These kinds of changes have never happened before. And, and they really do change the dynamics of, of, of what's going to happen to food. I mean, these are companies that look upon food as they look upon uh, a book or, or uh, um, you know, uh, uh, shoes or something else. They don't see it as vital to life so much. It's just another commodity. Yeah, and I think a lot of the reason why the approaches to fixing our food system is based on this premise that we need to create more food to feed the 10 billion people that are going to be on this planet by 2050. And I've, you know, I've often brought that up as uh, as a as a problem, right? We are going to have 10 billion people. The current system that we have uh, is draining our natural resources, and obviously, 
pushing us to the limits of our planetary boundaries and beyond it already. Um, and so if you frame the problem as how do we feed 10 billion people by 2050, the, the answers you usually get is let's figure out ways to increase output of food without using mm. as much resources. Yes, let's use data to optimize how we grow food so that we're able to deliver more calories to more people. You're looking at it as a, as a technology problem, as a pure math problem versus uh, the fact that food involves people, food involves communities, food involves um, soil, food involves air. Do you think that, that the folks who are currently leading the charge on automation or efficient supply chains and um, uh, new new ways to produce protein are maybe just not understanding the scale and the scope of the problem? I, I think they, I don't know what they do understand, frankly. They, they, it's, they have a sense of the scale, but they don't, I think, have a sense of where they are in that scale or how they're balancing on the scale. It's, uh, I mean, these things are true, of course. We're going to have increased population in somewhere in the neighborhood of $10 billion by 10 billion people by 2050. Uh, we're going to have um, greater demand for, we're told, for milk and dairy products than, uh, and meat products than, than before. We're told that uh, there'll be new pressures because of, of all kinds of different factors that will change the food system, and we have to adjust to that. Um, they don't say that and also say that between one third and close to half of all of the food that is produced now is wasted along the food chain. Uh, so right there, mm -hmm. if we didn't have that wastage, we would have more than enough food to feed the people in 2050. Right there, more than enough. Uh, they don't say, for example, in terms of, of growing that food, that half of the fertilizer that's being used, synthetic fertilizer that's being used, never make it to the plant. They're not as wasted. And so that's 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 destructive to the environment because it's wasted. Uh, I'm not sure it's good for the plant almost anyways, but the way it's working. But it's also a, definitely a, a massive wastage. But somehow the poor old fertilizer industry can't seem to sell us half of the fertilizer that we need. They keep selling us too much. Mm -hmm. So I, I feel sorry for them, but not very. <laughs> so we have these constant problems. We're, we're also recognizing that while we have a, a food problem, one quarter of, of, of the food that's being consumed in Europe and North America, at least, and by in the middle class and other parts of the world, is wasted because it's wasted. It goes to their tummies. It's mm -hmm. overconsumption. And that's not good for us. It's bad for our health system. It's bad for our, our lives, of course. And it's, it's a waste of food. So... We we're told we have to do all these new things. They haven't done any of the things we've known for a long time now are problems that can be solved. So I, I, the starting point is wrong. Right. Uh, we, let's address that. And let's. I would like to see agribusiness show us that they can manage their own supply chains now. Show us that they can take care of the wastage in the system. Show us that they can help solve the problem of overconsumption of foods and show us that they can make sure that we're not destroying the environment by some of the inputs they're now forcing us, forcing farmers to use in the fields today. Mm -hmm. If they can deal with those things, then maybe we can start to have a conversation about what new toys they would like to provide us with. You obviously have been keeping track of what's happening with um, the rise of uh, food tech startups in, in, in the last, I would say, five to 10 years in the U.S., yeah. Um, several, and around the world. And around the world now, actually. Yeah. Several of them backed by big Silicon Valley investors. And um, 
I've talked to several of them on this podcast as well. The approach that they go with is that obviously we know industrial animal agriculture or factory farming is an incredibly wasteful, cruel, and uh, destructive um, way to produce animal protein. The solution is to, let's say, for example, to produce meat using plants uh, or produce meat using cells, which eventually will make it to the market in maybe the next few years. Um, And these efforts are being led by small nimble companies who have all the best intentions and are doing it largely because they want to solve the problems with the food system. At least they start off with that intention. Why is why do you believe that in itself is also not not really going to make a difference? Um, isn't it better if we can choose a plant-based burger versus something that's produced in a factory farm? Um, why do you think that's not part of the solution or can't be part of the solution? Well, I, I don't think I want to rule it out. Mm-hmm. I simply want to not pay for it or have it divert resources to that uh, away from the kinds of innovations that are going on that seem to be really working and, and which uh, are, are decentralized, diversified in a way that's, that I think is better. Uh, I don't, what I worry about is when, when startups or major companies, dominant companies, tell us now that they can do these things if, if government will get out of the way or government will get out of the way in terms of regulation, but get in the way in terms of providing money for it and tax holidays, et cetera. Um, that, that worries me then. Uh, but if, if, if people want to do that kind of experimentation, then I think that's uh, fine. Go ahead and do it. Uh, but what we've got right now after several years now, five years, six years now of, of, uh, of, of sort of kind of meat, synthetic meats and so on in the marketplace place is uh, not much, $11 hamburgers in, in Singapore. Um, the, uh, or is it, it was more than $11, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't have much in terms, in terms of the skyscraper gardens. We've got 38 hectares of, of skyscraper gardens around the world, and almost all of it's cilantro, I think. It, it's not going to feed the world. Maybe it will someday. I'm not ruling it out. I'm, it may be that they'll reduce the energy costs of that system and produce something more than cilantro for us that we can, we can uh, you know, get more food than that. Um, but at this stage, it's not. And what I do see that's exciting and, and uh, is not attractive to agribusiness is this highly decentralized system of 350 million scientists around the world who have 350 million labs they're working in around the world called farms. Uh, where they're doing experimentation all of the time Mm -hmm. and where because of new IT technologies, they're actually talking to each other. They're looking at the crops and diseases and looking at the diversification of of systems to respond to climate change, to to respond to biodiversity loss. They're doing that now. They need more support to do that. And they're the ones that are actually feeding people. Mm -hmm. 70% of the world's people depend upon the food grown by these very small producers around the world. That's where the success is. It needs to be improved it's not good enough but it needs to it needs to be improved but certainly doing a lot better than agribusiness has been doing for us since world war ii where they're using more than 75 percent of the actual resources energy resources for agriculture and they're only growing enough food to feed about 30 percent of the people rather badly Mm -hmm. so if you want to look at sources of, of, of where do you want to innovate where do you want to have this creative exciting innovation i want decentralized environmentally sensitive uh, innovation around the world. And I don't want to go to the centralized kinds of systems that the companies are talking about that uh, are yet to be proven to work. 
Yeah, I mean, I think you also make a really interesting point in the report about um, how you we do need to reduce protein. Cons- I mean, animal protein consumption, especially in in the Western <laughs> world. Uh, and you are in favor of uh, meat reduction and flexitarian Absolutely. diets. Yeah. Maybe you can talk a little bit about territorial supply chains and, and what your idea of having shorter supply chains, more regional, localized food systems, um, that concept. And then, of course, I want to figure out how we can practically get there. Sure. Yeah. Well, just with that last part first, just for a second, I mean, the trend lines throughout all of this century – from 2000 onwards, the trend lines have been very clear toward either vegetarianism or flexitarianism, at least. And in Germany, it's about 9% increase in the population moving towards that kind of diet every year. And that's before we had this current crisis. So that's been going on. Uh, we're seeing that in the industrialized countries. So any assumption that we're going to really have the demand for meat and dairy products that the industry says we're going to have in 2050, I think is is not realistic. Uh, we're even seeing now a trend away from pork, for example, in China, partly because of disease problems in China mm-hmm. with 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 the, the swine industry. But but it's uh, there's also other factors. There, the people are beginning to realize that it's not a good diet for them either. So we're seeing this a counter trend there that has been building over the last couple of decades, and that will continue. It's not going to continue rapidly enough or at the, at the pace that we need to have it. Uh, to get us through the crises of the decades ahead of us, so we have to, you know, move that up faster. We've got to we've got to increase the the pace of activity, but um, the trends there are encouraging. Uh, we talk a lot about territorial markets. You're right, and 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 we do that because of the again, the proven experience that those markets work very well, and they've really shown themselves to work well around the world uh, with the the COVID crisis we're in. Uh, people have had to depend more upon their local markets than before in Africa and Asia and Latin America. Uh, the markets have been there to meet their needs as best they can and more, more effectively than others have at prices that they can afford, people can afford to have. So that's there. We think with climate change, especially, uh, the pressures of climate change are such that um, there's going to be one crisis after another and, and, and more pandemics over the next couple of decades. Given that, we need to have a decentralized response to it. Food security has got to be as close to uh, the consumer as possible in terms of its production. And uh, the record shows that, that is possible. We see in uh, places like uh, Singapore and Shanghai, uh, mega cities in the world, highly uh, uh, automated industrialized cities. And yet there's a growth there in terms of local food production, peri-urban production, people getting most of the meat and dairy, or the dairy products, at least, pardon me, from uh, in, uh, eggs and so on, from uh, uh, city cons- production. Uh, closer alliances being built with neighboring farms and so on to get more and more of their food as close as possible. That's the kind of system we need to build to be resilient uh, with climate change. And that doesn't happen with long supply chains that, that we're now faced with with agribusiness. I think also part of the danger with um, replacing one product for a product that uses less resources and perhaps um, has less greenhouse gas emissions and less impacts on the environment, if they're still relying on the same long supply chains to get those products to the market via you know, grocery stores and traditional distribution channels, you end up pretty much in a slightly better version of the same system, which is, yeah. if you look at it from a from a 
bigger standpoint, it does play a role. I mean, I, it can only help, but it's it's kind of a marginal improvement versus I, I, I'm starting to understand now why you call the the unusual view of the next uh, 25 years to be one where you actually shift away from this centralized, consolidated, globalized food system to one that has uh, is more diversified, more more local, more. Uh, I guess an, another way to to put it would be to empower those that produce foods within certain regions uh, to have more resources and ability to to actually supply food for those regions. And as you're you're hundred percent right, when we have supply chain disruptions because of pandemics or floods or fires or and other natural disasters that are undoubtedly only going to uh, happen more often in the in the years ahead, you then need to make sure that you have a local economy that is able to 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 provide food for those around it. And so I don't see a real so here here's the tough question I suppose, which is I don't see a concerted effort being made globally right now to make this happen. It seems to be happening, but in a very grassroots, um, usually not with tremendous amount of funding behind it, uh, ways because um, because it doesn't seem like these solutions can scale. I mean, I guess it goes back to what incentives do investors have to put money into projects? And today, you if you put money into a project that can scale and grow 100x in the next few uh, years, you're going to probably do that because you get the greatest return on investment versus some regional food solution that won't exceed the boundaries of that region and has a certain ceiling to how much return you might get, which might be at most or best maybe five percent or ten percent um so i guess the incentives don't exist so in light of that fact how do you think we can practically create a long food movement and firstly what do you mean by the long food movement and and how can we do that given that we don't have financial incentives in our current capitalistic globalized economy well first what i mean by the long food movement and it's not just me, of course. There was mm-hmm. there was quite a crowd of us working on this project, and and over the last almost two years, and and from all over the world and from all kinds of backgrounds. But um, in looking at it, um, uh, for us, th- there were probably two key things that we wanted to address. One of them was the th- that if we think only in the short term, two and three year sort of steps that can be taken, then we're we're going to lose sight of the long term needs. And we're going to lose a major advantage that we have as civil society, which is that we're around for the long haul. Uh, we stick at it. People in food movements and so on have been around for, look at me, <laughs> I'm, I'm in my 70s. Uh, people can be around for a long time. And and uh, the that that ability then is, is, is that's a strength that we have, to, that we are around for the long time. We should be thinking ahead because you look at, if you look from where we are today, no, let's go back a year, for example, uh, Niels, a year ago, if we'd sat around talking about this and I had said, you know what we need to do? We need to get together to create a treaty to tax agribusiness much, a much higher level than it's being taxed today. Uh, and we need to establish a system that stops all those tax havens uh, from stealing all the money so we can get more resources for our governments to do their job. And that would have been thought to be just ludicrous. We're not going to get governments to agree to raise taxes on corporations. And you've got to be kidding. We're not going to be able to get rid of tax havens. That can't happen. Well, that's happening. 
Biden has said in, in your country, as Biden has said, that, that by uh, uh, this summer, he wants to have a, a new tax deal and uh, where taxes are going up. Uh, there's more about that in the news even today. Uh, we, we're seeing major changes that couldn't have been thought of a year ago now being very reasonable and possible today. So that's changing. And, and so for us, we think we need to be thinking 25 years ahead. We need to be recognizing that we, we need the leverage of that 25 years, that, we, that civil society can stand on the fulcrum and make the change over a longer period of time if we plan carefully for it. And the second thing about the long food movement is that we, we need to recognize that there are tipping points there. That as we're going through a tipping point now, I think, since, since the, the food price crisis of, of 2008, uh, we, we are at a, in this flex moment where things that we didn't think could happen before suddenly become possible. And we need to be ready for that. We need to be prepared to take advantage of those situations, how, however negative they may appear to be initially. Um, they still create a space where the politics change geopolitics change and and we can we can imagine um, a better possibility a better world so if you then look from there at well how do we get from here in civil society without the resources that are there without the big money behind us to make these things scale up i would again turn that around i don't want to sound like i'm just trying to be cute about it but 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 you know peasant producers around the world who are growing 70 percent of the world's food for people uh, aren't waiting for venture capitalists to drop by mm -hmm. uh, they just want people to get off their back so they can do their job and they want to have the chance to be more innovative so that the regulatory systems that they have to face aren't there to protect big business they're there to give them a chance to get their food to market that's what they need uh, they don't need a daddy warbucks to show up at the same time is there the, the, we have to look at the, again agribusiness here these guys have had really the world to themselves in terms of the industrial world at least since world war ii for 70 odd years now they've really been in charge of the food system in industrialized countries yet they can't scale up they're only feeding 30% of the world's people at a tremendous cost to the environment and to energy and to, and, and to the food system. So if we're looking for someone to scale up, one side is feeding 70% of the people, the other side's feeding 30% of the people, and one's draining away our resources and, and draining away our environment, and the other one isn't. So is it? Uh, I don't really much care what Wall Street does about this, as long as they don't get in the way. But I do think we need to have governments working with what is working in our world and building that up to make it more effective. It's not as effective as it could be, but it can be much more effective. Yeah, what you're saying is really important, which is that the, the current forces in the global sort of corporate food movement are acting in opposition to the, those smallholder farmers who yes. currently feed 30%. And so it's not really a question about who... It's not really a question about whether these technologies work or not. It's it's the fact that it creates a ripple effect that leads to policy change that benefits the the, the mega corporations that have kind of gotten us to where we are right now, which is the problems sure. we have with our food system. And so I guess I guess what you're saying is then the incentives line up for the wrong uh, parties versus instead of those that are actually doing the good work who currently are being crushed under the weight of corporate power and consolidation. Um, the tone, the, the, the mood is changing, I think, now, though. It, it's interesting that the last few months we've had this rather funny case, it, it's almost laughable, uh, in France, where uh, uh, Carrefour, which is the world's second biggest 
to Walmart, I guess, a uh, grocery chain in the world. And Carrefour was uh, received an offer from a Canadian company, my country, Canadian company, to buy it. And the Minister of Industry in France uh, got up in, in uh, his parliament and said, uh, we can't have this. This is a threat to our food security if a, if a foreign country owns our retail outlet. And, and he even used the terms food sovereignty. He said, you know, we, this is a threat to food sovereignty in France. Well, if, if uh, Ghana or uh, Kenya had tried to make that argument about a takeover, uh, they'd be in deep trouble. That would be a violation of WTO agreements. There would be all kinds of bilateral trade rules they'd be breaking to, uh, to try to protect food security in Ghana or in Kenya. But the world is changing again. If France can make those arguments, then it's quite possible for developing countries to say in the same fashion that for our food security in this time of crisis, one crisis after the other with, with the pandemic, with, with the climate, with biodiversity loss and so on, we need to be able to establish territorial markets that maintain our national food security. Then I, I think they have, that's an argument that can be made now. Uh, it can be backed up logically. Uh, can be backed up in terms of resources, and uh, uh, that's the way we have to work. Which doesn't mean that I give up coffee, which I'm, I'll fight for, uh, but uh, but I'll pay better for it. Uh, it just means that that uh, we need to see what is working and where the innovation really is, and give support there. I mean, for example, and I'll stop talking. <laughs> Sorry about this. I'm ranting, but the I mean, if we look at the work that's being done by companies in research now, 45% of all research in agriculture and in, in food and agriculture by the private sector focuses on one crop, corn or maize, 45%. If you look at the top eight crops, commercial crops on the planet, uh, the companies are working with, that's all of their resources going to those eight crops, virtually nothing else. Uh, that's ridiculous. To survive climate change, we have to have more diversity in our food system. To deal with new pests and new diseases, new growing conditions, we need to work with the 7,000 crops that peasant farmers have domesticated over the last uh, 7,000 years, really roughly, 10,000 years. Um, and, and that's what we need to build with. And that's what farmers are working with around the world. They're working with all kinds of crops and all kinds of livestock. We work with five species of livestock in industrialized countries. That's it. Farmers around the world are working with 38 different species of livestock that have been domesticated. So that's the kind of thing we need to build upon to get us through the crises that we are going to be faced with in the decades coming. What are your thoughts on how, what the UN is doing with the UN Food Systems Summit and the efforts at that level uh, around you know, our food system and how we can transform it? And to what extent is that being led by big agribusiness interests versus truly what's needed uh, in terms of empowering uh, producers around the world? Well, I, I have to confess that I, I, I have a deep affection for the United Nations. Uh, I felt like I, I grew up in it almost. I, my mm -hmm. first times I went overseas as a kid, um, I went to UN meetings at the age of 18 and um, as a civil society protester, but still I was, uh, I've always found there's something about the UN I, I quite like, 
um, uh, it basically still does give the vote to each country, and and uh, sometimes good things happen there. Uh, at the same time, I, I, probably anything you want to say that's bad about the UN, I would also probably agree with. <laughs> um, but the, the, you know, the, the, all the, the it is still it's it's the, the sum total of um, of of 192 or 195 different warring factions, kind of. But but uh, when I. I, I have hopes that the UN in the last few years really has has started to realize around the food system work at least uh, that they need to cooperate in a different kind of way. So we saw, for example, with the last food price crisis, a sudden move in the UN which said, let's create this Committee on World Food Security, which will bring together all of the governments, all of the major actors in the, in the multilateral system, UN and beyond the UN even systems, to come together to talk about this issue once a year, to fight out the policy issues there. And we're going to bring into that configuration civil society as well. And civil society was invited into the UN meetings to speak exactly as though they were countries. The only difference is in this UN forum is that we don't get to vote there. Only the governments get to vote. And I completely agree with that. That's the way it should should be but we get to fight and the governments have to pay attention and that has been a really creative environment for new ideas new ways of working that is proving to be very successful the private sector came late to that party they were never excluded from it but they didn't seem to realize it was there for a while they've got into the party as well so those annual meetings that take place in rome are a battleground which bring in all of the actors around the table and, but again, governments finally decide, and that's been, I think, working well. It needs to be moved on, it needs to be strengthened further. I can identify lots of weaknesses in that system, but it really is creating now an approach towards a global food policy and a recognition of a global food system. Now, in all of that, all of a sudden, about two years ago, we had the proposal that came out of the World Economic Forum, the, the Davos folks, uh, who said, hey, we need to have a new food system. And they went to the Secretary General of the United Nations in New York and said, let's have a summit together. And the Secretary General went along with it because after all, this is Bill Gates and all of the big companies as well and, and, and agreed to it. So now the summit is being developed. Uh, I th honestly think it's leading to uh, what I guess is this clumsy language, but I would describe as a kind of a new sort of multi-stakeholderism where they all say, well, we're all stakeholders around the table together, uh, the private sector, public sector, civil society. So let's just reason together and between us, we'll figure out a good way to go ahead. But that removes governments from their primary responsibility, which is to act on behalf of the people, whether they do it well or not in different countries, that's still, that's what we got. And it puts the private sector in a very powerful position where they say, well, we've got the money because we've taken it from the governments and we've got the technologies which we want to play with and we've got the infrastructure. So really it's not multi-stakeholder, it's really bilateral. It's really governments and corporations together that will solve these problems. And that's the way the summit now that we're looking at coming up in, at the end of this year, the summit is, is moving in that kind of direction where it's really going to be a, not a multi-stakeholderism, but a new bilateralism with the biggest corporations and the biggest governments really calling the shots. And I think that's got to be resisted. It's, to me, it's a critical battleground. We've, we've got to make sure that doesn't happen and that people understand that, that, uh, that we need to have governments in the driver's seat, but we need to have the rest of us holding them accountable. 
Yeah. And what about the the, NG, the NGOs who are participating in this process? I don't, I don't know to what extent you are an active participant, but I, I would assume that maybe I can't speak for all of them, but some of them at least uh, seem to have the right ideas on what we truly need um, to bring about, you know, transformation in the food system. And it usually isn't you know, at least the smart ones are not going to be pointing to big companies to solve the problems. They're looking for more creative solutions that can not just you know tackle a, a, one aspect or one one value that we we hold dear in the food system. It could be you know sustainability, but are thinking of it more broadly in terms of equity and thinking of it more broadly in terms of how do we build resiliency and and think, keeping factors like that in mind. How, what role are they being are playing in this process, if any? And and are you optimistic that they can maybe have a loud voice, or are they just representatives of um, whoever's funding them? <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm. I, I think there's a lot of goodwill around the summit, uh, though. I think s- several of those who are involved from the NGO or civil society world are there because that's where the money is, and there's always a desperation for money for for work in the field. And so they, they find that they kind of have to go there mm-hmm. or they're pressured to go there by the foundations that give them money and the bilateral aid agencies that give them money. But, but I must admit, I'm really quite cynical about how it's moved so far and I'm not optimistic about where it's going to end up. The, the uh, it's a bit like we've been, we've all been invited to go to Disney, Disney world, uh, sort of the Disney world food system summit. Uh, we, we can all go, we can all get on the rides the rides are exciting. They're full of all kinds of interesting things. There's Wonderland and there's Never Never Land and there's fan, whatever, I don't know what those, Frontier Land and so on. <laughs> and, and but, you know, you can, so you go on the, we all go on the ride together, but when we get off, we're exactly where we were when we started. And, and it doesn't lead someplace. Mm. And what, the way the whole summit has been structured is that while we're all on the ride, you know, there's amazing names, there's champions and there's heroes. They actually call that, uh, that, that are part of this process uh, that when it's over, uh, there'll be no real finished negotiated document. The, the governments, in fact, at this stage are kind of wondering why they're there. How did they get into Disney World? Uh, how did they get out of Disney World? Because at the end of the day, the organizers will say, well, this was really quite exciting, wasn't it, folks? We had absolutely everybody here, didn't we? And we all got to do all kinds of neat things. But here's what we've got out of it. And they can kind of cherry pick those things which they like, which is what the World Economic Forum likes and what agribusiness likes, to be the things they want to follow through on. And no one's going to be able to even say that there was anything else. It's been structured in such a terrible way. It's, it's, I've never been, I've been around again a long, long time and, and I've been through other summits and um, I, I've never seen anything quite as badly organized and in some ways almost intentionally badly organized as this is. So the, the, the results are going to be very managed and by no means negotiated. What, what do you think a better way to do this would be? Or if you had, you know, if you could recommend two or three things that we can prioritize and focus on. Uh, and I know this is a pretty broad question because it, it really is, it shouldn't be done at, at a global scale. It has to be decided um, nationally, regionally for most uh, of these problems, mm-hmm. need solutions at that level. But generally, what would you say if you were to outline certain principles or approaches? Um, and if you had everyone listening, 
which in some ways you do now, um, <laughs> what would you say to them or what would you recommend that our, you know, our priorities need to be to ensure that we can truly make the difference uh, uh, in, in the time frame that you've laid out, right? Let's say 25, 30 years, which I think is a great time frame because you're also going to have the population increase and all these other factors. Climate change is going to batter our planet pretty clearly in the next decade. Um, what would you recommend? Well, I, I, I like the idea of the summit. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's properly titled to be a food system summit even because we need to look at the system. Um, I don't at all regret having a wide range of actors come to the summit, private sector included, of course. Um, I think they should be there. But I think the battle lines or the issues should be clearly stated mm -hmm. and then fought out and negotiated. And governments should be the ones at the end of the day who actually make the decisions as bad as our governments are. Uh, and I can, we can both rant on about that, I'm sure, in different countries. But, but the fact still is that, that someone's got to finally make decisions and, and uh, just how we get to that point to make those decisions. And is it clear to everybody what's being discussed? And do we know we've made a decision? That would all be good. And so I, I, I'm happy to see, for example, a, a debate between uh, the industrial food chain and what I would describe as the peasant food web. Uh, as, as two different systems, one an agroecological approach, the other one, you know, high-tech industrialized approach. Uh, I think that would be a good debate to have. Let's lay out the issues on the table. Let's look at the facts and figures, folks. Let's let's look at evidence-based solutions here. Um, I don't fear that kind of discussion. Um, I think we need to have a practical discussion as well about how do we make the UN system work better? How, how can we reduce some of the bureaucracy in the system? How can we actually get decisions made more clearly there as well? Um, we need to have also a very precise understanding about what we mean when we talk about multi-stakeholder involvement, which always sounds good, right? It sounds good to have that. What they don't recognize is that, that uh, in the way it's being structured now, and most, most things are these days, is that there are stakeholders which are the peasants who are producing the food and fisher folk and so on on one side and, 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 and those who are food needy, who, who, who are food insecure all together on one side who are, are the stakeholders. They are the ones whose lives are, are at stake. They need to be there. On the other side, we've got the steak eaters, the folks <laughs> that, that uh, you know, they have nothing, they have no skin in the game. Mm -hmm. they're, they're, they're there trying to protect their bonuses at Christmas time. Uh, or their, or you know, their next salary raise of some kind, uh, but th their lives are not at stake. Not even their livelihoods are at stake. And recognize it's an unequal relationship around that table. So multi-stakeholderism in that relationship just doesn't work. Uh, we need to to be clear about hearing voices, but again, figuring out that the governments will finally have the information they need to make the decisions that they have to make. Mm -hmm. And that kind of summit, I, I welcome. And we. We, I think we would have actually common cause with um, a lot of those who, from the World Economic Forum who say we do need to have a, a system change in, the, in, in how these things are done, but it's not the system change that they want. It's a system change, which I think is more democratic than that and really does uh, recognize the need for highly decentralized, highly innovative uh, changes in our system to get us through the next decades. Okay. I think, you know, some people, I think one, one of the dangers of... Um, some of the stuff that you're saying, or at least how it may be perceived, 
um, and some of what was in the long food uh, movement report is that you are anti-technology, which I don't think is the case, right? Because it's it's not a question of, and, and correct me if, if I've gotten this wrong, but I guess it's not a question of uh, whether technology is the problem or not. It's, it's how it's being de- deployed and who controls it. So, you know, if so I would just love some thoughts on, on your thoughts on technology, because maybe there is some power in using some of these new systems, including data gathering, including uh, new forms of, of protein, but finding a hybrid solution that is sits somewhere at the intersection of this globalized way of, of, of manufacturing and distributing food and sort of merging it with some of what we need at the uh, at the small farmer level and how can we actually empower them with technology versus just having technology be in the hands of say Amazon or a few other companies that as you said right in the beginning are not even food companies you've, you've got it exactly right I mean it, it is a question of who owns and controls it um, if if, uh, if the information that's produced and generated from the farm and the fishing trawler and so on are, are, are in the hands of Amazon or Alibaba or, or, or uh, Cargill, uh, that's a different question than whether if it's in the hands of, of the fisher folk or the, or the farmers themselves and, 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 and local consumers. So it's, it's, it's that ownership and control is a very key question here. Uh, it's also though, I mean, uh, to, to be honest with you, it's it's um, it's also a question sometimes of the technologies themselves, and and I'm speaking to you as someone who again because I've been blind since I was 12, I depend entirely on new technologies to be able to read, to be able to write, to be able to dictate into my computer, mm-hmm. uh, to get around. Uh, I take advantage of all of those technologies, and I'm very glad for them. And then uh, I, I God, thank God they're there. But um, if so I, I'm not against those technologies, but we have to recognize that in history, uh, any powerful new technology that comes along, and I'm not talking about just little changes, but significant changes in technologies that comes along, like semiconductors, when they come along, uh, the rich see those waves of change approaching and can ride those waves, usually very successfully. The poor, the marginalized in the world don't see those waves coming, they get swamped by them. And so there's always that risk with a new technology. So you can look at the industrial revolution initially as it began in the, mm-hmm. in, in, in the British Isles you know, century, two centuries ago. And, and uh, uh, you say, well, look at all we got because of the industrial revolution. Well, but yes, but for, for four generations, British families really suffered because of the industrial revolution. People got shorter, people's lives shortened. Uh, they were less healthy. Uh, than ever than they were for for literally a hundred years, so that's that. Who wants to say that now about to, to their grandchildren to say, well, but don't worry, your kids will be okay. My grandchild, <laughs> that's not the way we want to build our world, and and there are those dangers with some of these new powerful technologies. They do sometimes mean a profound change in structures. Of, of how the world works and profound change in controls. So we have to be aware of that as well. But I, if I look at uh, some of the digital potential for, for monitoring data, if I look at um, 
Again, what I can do with my cell phone to share disease information with farmers in different parts of the world, how I can move seeds from a gene bank in Brazil to a gene bank in Nepal to, uh, to uh, help them experiment with new solutions to pest problems in that country. Um, that kind of technology, I think, is very exciting. And if it can be kept in the hands of the people and governments that they can trust, then, then there's some hope for that. But, but um, it's, it's not hopeful for me to think that three or four companies are fighting to get control of all of it, and they don't even know much about food. Mm. Yeah, and also I've noticed this trend. I mean, it's nothing new. I mean, if, if, I'm sure if anyone had been paying attention to the food system over the last several decades or perhaps any industry, it's, it usually goes this way. There are a few new entrants into the industry that are very disruptive. They they come up with some new innovation that really shakes up the industry, um, creates a whole new market for new kinds of products. Uh, and then maybe a handful of them manage to stay independent while a majority of them tend to get swallowed up by the uh, the the existing big food companies that are in that industry, and that's true of technology or any, I mean, you know, I mean, digital technology or any other industry. I'm seeing that already Absolutely. happening in food in the last, you know, seven, eight years. Um, it, it became clear that people started seeing the 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 problem with factory farming as being something that needs an urgent solution, um, and where plant-based proteins is an interesting way to to reduce the demand for industrialized meat. But in the years since this new technology or solution has emerged, the majority of the big, almost all the big meat companies now have their own version of these products. Um, and several of the newer startups are probably going to get acquired. If And most of them are probably aiming to get acquired by some of these bigger food companies. And then the question becomes, where do we end up? Does it really make a dent in factory farming? Or do we end up with, you know, maybe a small percentage decrease in, in how much animal protein is produced? Or at worst, you end up with blended products that most consumers can't even differentiate. And I know there's efforts right now to, to, to further the focus on those products as a way to claim you're reducing the amount of, you know, meat that is produced or consumed when we when the data doesn't really support it at the moment. So those are the dangers and and you're we're talking about millions and millions of dollars being poured into these this these efforts right now and we still don't know what the true impact of any of it is and factory farming as far as we know hasn't gone away and meat consumption continues to rise and 99% of the meat most people are eating at least here in the west is from a factory farm so uh and you know unless and if you if you can afford it maybe you can choose something better but most people most people in this country can't so um do you see that as well is that the dangers of just just the way our our, our global kind of economy tends to work and the way capitalism tends to work really we end up pretty much in the same place maybe with marginal improvements and i guess the question then becomes can we afford marginal improvements given the state of the planet and given how dire the situation is with the food system and and the answer of course is we can't afford that uh, we've already you know, exceeded at least four of the plant, nine planetary boundaries and probably gone past six of them, perhaps more. So, so we are in a crisis mode now. Um, we've got to do better than we have been doing. Uh, we can't let companies just uh, 
tell us that they've got a again a Disneyland theme pavilion somewhere that they're playing around with. And the mouse of mind that by the way go into those exercises uh, whether it's impossible meat or whatever are very small amounts of money compared to what the companies spend uh, uh, on other kinds of research. It, it's it's uh, it's millions of dollars for the little company and it, it's uh, peanuts to to the to the big company. Mm-hmm. So it, 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 it it's part of their public relations exercise more than anything else. Some of them will 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 make more progress though, and it, I, I, change does happen. Uh, systems do change. Uh, old companies do uh, fall away, and new companies do materialize. So it, it, it's I don't want to be overly cynical here about where it will finally lead to, but I, I know that at a time of crisis, what you don't do is is throw out the things that are working best at this time. And I don't want to even suggest that the food systems we have are, are even in the peasant side, are optimum. They're, they're so handicapped by uh, uh, government regulation, which has been working against them because it's been imposed on them by companies, again, who want don't want competition, or they're hampered by the big companies and, and their resources in some way. So, so we need to, we need to improve all, all the systems of production, certainly. But the, 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 but that is, you know, in crisis again, you you don't gamble on say, well, let's let's try the technology that doesn't exist yet. Let's try the one that we haven't, we don't have any evidence that's going to work, uh, and see if that's going to get us through this problem. And, and that's it feels to me that that's what is being argued in both the food summit and being argued by the major companies now is that don't worry, we've got this solution around the corner. Just step aside, give us the room we need, and we'll we'll take care of it for you. Yeah. And just to clarify, when you say the peasant farmers, uh, I know some people consider peasant to be a derogatory word. Yeah, I don't sure. know what, what sense you're, you're using it. Obviously, it, I think it's being applied to small farmers, smallholder farmers. Is that just to clarify if someone's not clear on what we're sure, talking Sure. I know about. people get offended by it all the time, <laughs> and, and I understand that. That it, it's the it's the term that's been chosen by by smallholder producers around the world. Mm-hmm. It's their term. Uh, when they went to the Human Rights Council in the United Nations in Geneva and fought for peasant rights, they called it peasant rights. The the the, the governments wanted to call it farmers' rights of some kind, and and the and the the, the producers themselves said, "No, we are the people of the land. Mm-hmm. We are the paysans, and and so that's our term." So they're they're capturing that term, and and those of us who live in cities and so on probably are uncomfortable with it. <laughs> it seems somehow politically incorrect, but it's it's their definition, and and, uh, and I think it it actually fits rather well. Yeah, I'm glad you, I'm glad I asked that. And I'm glad you clarified that. Um, also, you know, on the other hand, I think some people would look at your approach and say. Well, for that to work, you really need governments to step in and do something. And we all know governments are slow to move, and policies take years and years, and subsidies. Uh, you know, there's 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 been willingness to to get rid of some of these subsidies that pro- cro- kind of keep uh, us dependent on a few commodity crops and have caused all the problems we see with our food system today. But the government is too slow and never actually gets anything done. Um, and so that's why this will fail, and that's why you know the, the private sector is way more uh, markets are way more capable of solving these problems, um, problems that they created in the first place. Um, what what do you say to that in terms of the the cynicism people tend to have about policy change and governments, and and maybe that's why they lean more towards um, a quick silver bullet techno fix that'll that'll transform everything. Okay. 
Well, well, some of that attitude is, is country specific, mm-hmm. I think. But it, it, I mean, to be sarcastic, I suppose. I mean, look how long it took Biden to get 1.9 trillion dollars put into a, into a budget a few weeks. Um, uh, look how long it's going to take him to get another two trillion dollars uh, uh, into an infrastructure program. Well, we're not sure about that one yet, but he's looking mm-hmm. optimistic. Um, uh, look how fast governments can go to war. Uh, mm. they've done often, <laughs> often and rapidly. <laughs> uh, and they haven't thought about it much before they did it usually, which is not the good part of, of the story. But uh, governments can move fast uh, when, they, when they want to. We've spent the last several decades, at least since the 1980s, sort of giving uh, governments sort of frontal lobotomies. They, they've lost, uh, they, they've been robbed of their intellectual resources. They've been robbed of their budgets. Uh, they've been robbed of a lot of their, their, their legislative authority in many cases, even in, in terms of some of the regulations that have come out. Uh, so they've been dumbed down. But I think we've discovered because of the pandemic around the world that we need them. And the governments have been dumbed down too much. We need to have more government than, than less government. We're talking about universal incomes now, mm-hmm. uh, universal basic incomes, which is a debatable issue for sure. But but the recognition that we need to have that, uh, suddenly um, socialized medicine in the United States doesn't seem quite as bad as it used to. Uh, and <laughs> from my point of view in Canada, <laughs> well, thank God we have socialized medicine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and most of the world feels that way. Uh, you're talking about child welfare in the United States now, where childcare, where, where uh, we've had, the rest of the world's had that in industrialized countries at least. Um, things change and governments can again move quickly. We are at a time of moving quickly. People joked about the French Revolution when uh, uh, one of the, the parliamentarians would, would, would go, to, go to the parliament in the morning thinking he's maybe going to give the right to vote even to the Jews. And he came back in the evening, he'd given it to the women and, 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 and uh, Africans as well. Um, worlds change quickly. Yeah. So, so we, we are at that moment. Where, where those kinds of changes are possible. If we don't capture that moment and build from it, uh, then we are lost, I think, because we've got a very short period of time to work in, but it is there, there is that, that, that time. I think when, when we look back at this pandemic, if we, if we can eventually look back at it, um, I, I think that the, the, uh, the, the goodwill that is momentarily there for the pharmaceutical companies uh, will have evaporated. Uh, what we're starting to see in terms of the rollout of, of vaccines for Asia and Africa and Latin America is just so terrible, despite all the talk about how we're all in this together, mm-hmm. uh, is, is really creating a hostility towards the pharmaceutical industry. The kind of, of covenant that's been created between the pharmaceutical companies and um, uh, a couple of foundations and a few rich governments to manage the flow of, of the vaccines is really quite frightening. And, and, and very uh, against any kind of egalitarian hopes for the world. And as that starts to be understood more clearly, I think that, that uh, uh, people are going to take a very hard line on what government, what, what corporations do, and again, demanding more of the governments, not because they have great love for governments or great trust in what their politicians are doing, but saying, you guys have just got to do your jobs. We're going to make, hold you accountable for those jobs. Yeah, if if the pandemic has not taught us any lessons uh, and doesn't make us stop and think about the potential dangers of for future disasters, um, I don't know what will really. So, uh, I mean, I think you're right. It takes an acknowledgement across the board that we are 
facing an existential crisis when it comes to climate change and food is one, you know, 30% of that, you know, one third of that problem is because of our food system. And, you know, it's not only limited to greenhouse gas emissions, of course, it's also the impact on land and the impact on the oceans and and everyone who works within that system today. Biodiversity. Yeah, and species extinction. And so I think we, we, if we acknowledge that's the problem, then... You know, if as you said, I mean, I I haven't thought about that in this context. But if countries can go to war so quickly, why can't we do something um, pretty game changing when it comes to policies and when it comes to taking action? And you're right; it happens at the national level, and it will be different depending on which country you're in. But it's going to take that level of 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 shift for this to to happen in time. And so I'm gonna close out with one final question which really leads me to to and kind of similar to your long term view of the food system if if you know everything that you've outlined in you and your team have outlined in the long food movement report and and what we've discussed today comes to fruition if if that change really starts to happen how do you envision the food system to look like in the year, I give the year 2050, I know you're looking at the year 2045, but you know, around that time frame is, is a pretty good time frame because something needs to, if it doesn't change by then, if you do business as usual by then, till then, um, then, then probably we're, we're, we're going to run out of time um, to fix this problem that we've created. So what is your vision for the food system in the year 2050, if you get it right? Well, I'll give myself a couple of escape hatches, but but I, I will answer the question. And the escape hatches are, of course, that we the things we've already done to the climate are a bit unpredictable as to how they'll play out in the decades ahead. You know, no matter what we did now, even if we went to zero emissions right now, uh, we're we're still faced with problems in the future that we don't perceive now, and that's also equally true about uh, the loss of species. Biodiversity loss is is uh, unpredictable in terms of its consequences, but I. Th- still would believe that a, that a decentralized, innovative food system around the world um, would be one which would pretty much, except for any really critical moments, would eradicate systemic uh, hunger and malnutrition in the world. I think we could easily see ourselves reducing greenhouse gas emissions uh, for the industrial food chain by at least 75%. And that's that's a conservative estimate. I think we could take about $4 trillion that we're now spending um, uh, in costs, healthcare costs and, and food costs and other environmental costs in the food system. Those $4 trillion could be moved out of that wastefulness category into a positive expenditure that get, puts more food on the table for more people and pays uh, fishers and farmers adequately for their, for their, what they do and, and workers. Uh, that could be done. Uh, I think we could live in a, a healthier, more diversified food system than we have today uh, that's, that doesn't ignore the rest of the world, but is grounded on uh, having food close to home. So I, I, I really generally feel optimistic that that's possible. I, I don't think I'd be naive or silly about it. I've been in this work for 60 odd years now, and, and uh, or almost 60 years. And, and um, I don't think I'm being Pollyannish when I see that that is a, a viable way to go and is completely practical. Pat Mooney, thank you so much for your time today and thanks for all your insights. I appreciate you being on the Eat for the Planet podcast. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it very much. 
been listening to Eat for the Planet with Neil Zacharias. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to show your support, please subscribe to the show and rate and review it. To learn more about this podcast or my work, go to eftp.co. That's eftp.co. Thank you for listening. It's time for today's Lucky Land horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane. So shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.